From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, confidence, building. New research says nonverbal cues can help people avoid the social penalties of overconfidence. And a collaboration between Notre Dame's School of Architecture and the City of South Bend shows how buildings from the past can help plan for the future. I think a simple way to think of it is if we express confidence non-verbally, so through expansive postures, uh, assertive voice, eye contact, strong, firm handshake, uh, this can allow you or this will give you social benefits. Uh, it'll enhance your status while simultaneously uh, allowing you to avoid the risk of being seen as overconfident. Nate Mickle is a postdoctoral research associate at the Mendoza College of Business. He collaborated on a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology on the penalties of overconfidence. Overconfidence is one of these biases that is just, it's really uh, robust. We see it in lots of instances, lots of places. So uh, in 2015, I started working on a, on a project with a collaborator from Berkeley and University of Utah. And we wanted to uh, analyze all of the research on overconfidence from the last 15 years. Because the question was, uh, there's lots of research showing that overconfidence is, is prevalent. Is it prevalent just because we want to find it? Or does it really actually exist in the real world? And, and so my, that, that's kind of how I got started on this overconfidence topic. Uh, it was interesting because it was a bias. And then we wanted to find out, you know, is this, does this have real world consequences? So after compiling all that research from the last 15 years, uh, we basically came to the conclusion that, yeah, this, this does matter a lot. It has real-world implications in business, in politics, and then that led to this next project on uh, nonverbal versus verbal overconfidence. Hmm. What are some of those real-world consequences of overconfidence? You know, one that, that jumps out is in, in politics. So you have Ken Adelman, uh, national security advisor, talking about how we can go into Iraq and it's going to be a cakewalk to liberate Iraq. That's a real world implication where somebody has a belief about a future state of affairs and how difficult this thing is going to be to accomplish, expresses that confidence and, and then is later to shown and then is later shown to be wildly overconfident. And uh, I mean, you think about business leaders who who say we're going to be able to do X and they pour all of these resources, time and energy into that thing, get a lot of people behind them. I mean, you could look at Tesla right now, right? I mean, that's one where you've got a, a very confident confident CEO, and Elon Musk has shown to, he's proven to be in, incredible at what he does. Uh, but we're wondering right now, like, is this just a little too much there at Tesla? So where's where's the line then? Because I think we would all agree it's good to be confident. Is there a line at which confidence bleeds into over? confidence how do we how do we determine that yeah and I think uh, this may go a little more academic than than you're looking for but uh, we actually we think of confidence in in lots of ways as academic so in the lay terms uh, you know it's just kind of one thing if you you know we all kind of understand what overconfidence is mm -hmm. uh, we think of it as at least three different ways so one is I overestimate my ability to accomplish something so we call that overestimation 
So I, I, I'm going to take a test and I tell you, you know, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a 95. I'm going to get an A. I'm going to ace this test. And, and then I get a C. That's, we call that overestimation. So that's one type of overconfidence. And we tend to do that on hard tasks. We tend to overestimate our performance on difficult tasks. Another kind of overconfidence is uh, I overestimate my performance relative to you. So I tell you, you know, I'm going to perform better than you, or I'm going to, I'm going to do better on this test than 90. 95% of the other, or 95 other people are taking this test. And so we call this overplacement. For example, uh, we do this with driving. So, you know, if, if we ask uh, a thousand people, you know, where do you rate yourself as a driver? Are you better than average? 90% of the people are going to say they're better than average drivers. Mm-hmm. That's a good example of overplacement. And then there's some, there's some interesting debates about that. Like, well, what does it mean to be a better than average driver? Is it, is it that everybody's using a different standard? So you think being a good driver is, is getting where you're going really fast. Mm-hmm. And I think being a good driver is is being defensive. And so then it's possible, oh, actually, uh, we're all well calibrated. We're just using different standards. So maybe there isn't as much overconfidence as we think there. Uh, and this leads actually to the third type of overconfidence, which is the most robust of all of them. And this is we refer to as overprecision. So this is kind of a, a – we don't think in terms of overprecision often, but when we do, we're really uh, overconfident or overprecise. So the way we analyze this is, is we ask you 10 questions, uh, questions like, you know, why don't you estimate estimate how long uh, it would take you to drive from here to New York City, Um, uh, how much does a 747 weigh, how many uh, gallons are in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. And then we say, not only are you going to make an estimate, then you're going to give us a confidence interval, uh, a confidence interval where you're 90% sure that the answer lies between your confidence interval, right? So uh, for you know how long it takes to get to New York, uh, let's just say the miles. How many miles is it from here to New York? Uh, you know, I think it's about 1,000 miles, um, but I, I know it's not less than 200. Like I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure it's not less than 200, and I'm pretty sure it's not more than like... 2,500, so that's my 90% confidence interval. So if we ask 10 questions and you give us uh, 10 answers with 10 confidence intervals, nine of your answers should be fall within that confidence interval, right? Mm-hmm. And what we find is that like 30% of your confidence intervals uh, will contain the true answer. Uh, so that's just a, 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 that's one of the most robust ways that people are overconfident is, is we're just so precise. It, it almost gets back to like, we just kind of think we know more mm-hmm. uh, than we do a lot of times. you talk about is there a line between like what's overconfidence and and where do we leave uh, from confidence and get to overconfidence Um, it it makes me think of the question well why are we overconfident in the first place like what's the incentive and uh, there could be a number of reasons we do it one uh, we may do it just to enhance our own self-esteem like it, it makes us feel better if we act like we're really good and maybe we're sending that message to other people so it may be a, a self-enhancement technique uh, I've been or I've been reading up on some research that shows that uh, we're actually probably too optimistic about how much our confidence or optimism helps us so mm. you know there's lots of research on you know positive self-talk and 
and positive thinking. So, you know, fake it till you make it. If you have people complete tasks and you, and you try to get them really optimistic and really confident and then you have a control group not do that uh, and, and you have them complete tasks like, you know, basic things like persistent uh, or like a where's Waldo task or things like that. Um, and then you have them predict, say, who's going to perform better, the 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 really positive, optimistic people or the, or the control group, people will say like, oh, of course, the positive, you know, optimistic people are going are to do better. And, and what the research shows is that it doesn't really matter. Mm. Uh, what does matter, uh, this, this confidence, this optimism, it, it matters a lot in the long run in terms of like persistence. So if, I, if I'm confident and I think I can do well and that leads me to be persistent, well, then I'm going to actually enhance my skills and I'm going to perform better. Um, what you're really trying trying to do is, is use that confidence to help you practice and develop new skills and, and improve your skill level. So, uh, yeah, the, the positive self-talk uh, in the short run, I wouldn't, you know, it's not going to probably help you much. Confidence is no substitute for skill and knowledge. For skill, right. Now, where it does come into play, so we've talked about, you know, self-enhancement, um, but how about uh, other people's evaluation of you? Mm -hmm. Now, this is one where confidence, uh, yeah, it, it pretty much always wins. I mean, if, if you're if you're trying to assess two people that you want to work with, be with, uh, depend on, one of us is confident, one of us is, is cautious or meek or not, uh, on average, by and large, you're going to choose the confident person. So we developed a hypothesis, and that hypothesis was uh, when somebody acts very confident verbally and expresses a concrete manifestation of, of expectation, and then later they're shown to be incorrect, miscalibrated, overconfident, that person gets punished. Uh, but if I just act non-verbally, very confident, uh, expansive postures, big gestures, uh, eye contact, loud voice, firm handshake, uh, and, and you take that as a signal of my confidence about a task, and then you find out that I'm I'm wrong, that I'm actually not as good as you thought I was based on my nonverbals, you actually don't punish me as much. And so this was, this was the hypothesis that verbal displays of confidence and then overconfidence would be punished. These nonverbal signals or displays of confidence, which turned out to be apparent overconfidence, were not punished because there's plausible deniability. Hmm. Uh, so we call this the plausible deniability hypothesis uh, because presumably like if I'm acting overconfident or I'm acting very confident nonverbally and then you find out I'm not as good as you thought I was, it's like, well, he never did. I never did say that I was going to do that well. You just inferred it. And so I have plausible deniability. And and this is the yeah, this is the research that, that will be published soon in, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. That's interesting. So the, the nonverbal cues of overconfidence leave room for interpretation. Uh, exactly. So in other words, you could have gotten it wrong. I never said anything, but you, observer, um, read into things incorrectly. And the observer now becomes uh, yeah, kinder in their assessment of you when they find out they were wrong, right? Because presumably they say, oh, yeah, I mean, he never did say that he was going to do that well. I just inferred that. Talk to me a little more about your experiments to try to measure this. Yeah, okay. So imagine you're a participant. Uh, you come into a lab and you're going to meet two candidates in person. Uh, you meet one candidate 
and the candidate is very confident and he or she tells you, you know, uh, we're going to work on this task. We're going to collaborate on this task together. I just did a practice uh, test and I'm sure I got 10 out of 10 right. And then you go meet the other cautious candidate and they say, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not so good at that task. Uh, I only got five out of 10 right. Mm. And then you, you come back out and now as an experimenter, I tell you, okay, I'm going to tell you how well they actually performed. You know that, that person that said they got 10 out of 10, they actually only got five out of 10. Mm. Uh, so now you know they were overconfident. Uh, the person who said they only got five out of 10, they're right. They're well calibrated. They got five out of 10. Once you learn that information, you know, at first you're, you're just always going to choose the confident candidate, right? Because like you're going to collaborate with them. You want to do, you want to work with the good one that knows they're doing well. So at time one, you choose the confident candidate. Uh, once you learn about the behavior, uh, you end up punishing the confident candidate and you now flip and you're more likely to want to work with the well calibrated candidate. Well calibrated, even though um, skill wise, they're equal. Even though performance is equal, you'd rather, all things equal, you'd rather work with somebody that's well calibrated than somebody that's like mm. overconfident but wrong all the time, right? <laughs> uh, unless the confidence was displayed non verbally. So, th- what I just described was that, w- that was one condition. We showed that in a number of different ways online, meet in person, watch videos, mm-hmm. that pattern health. Now, Start the experiment over. Um, You walk into a room and you meet the confident person. They never tell you how well they did on the practice exam, but they act like Mm. they did really well. You're there to meet them, to try to figure out which one you want to work with. And they're very confident. They look you in the eye. They got this expansive posture, Mm -hmm. take up space, firm handshake, strong voice. Uh, And then you meet the cautious candidate. They're meek. You know, they don't look you in the eye. Uh, Of course, you're going to want to work with the confident candidate time one. Uh, Then you come back to me. I tell you, okay, uh, the confident candidate, when they completed the task, they got a five. The cautious candidate also got a five. Who do you want to work with? Now you say, I still want the confident candidate. Mm. And and so this is the rub. This is where when the confidence is displayed non-verbally, you give that confident candidate the benefit of the doubt. You know, at time one, you were thinking, the way they were acting, they were acting like they got a 10. And you thought they got a 10 based on the way they were acting. But now that you've learned how well they perform, presumably you're now thinking like, well, they never told me I got a 10. Mm. But I'd still probably rather work with the confident candidate than, than the cautious one. So... Yeah, th- those are those are the experiments because of the plausible deniability. Because presumably, of the, yeah, the burden of proof is almost on the observer, not yeah. the uh, not the confident person. If somebody makes just a, a bold claim that is one hundred percent proven wrong, uh, with no debate, you know, you, we're going to punish those people. Mm. And, and so that's where coming back to the two researchers, um, that's what we found is is the studies where the researchers from Berkeley were showing that overconfidence always wins. Uh, they were picking up on displays of overconfidence that had some plausible deniability. And the researcher at Utah that was finding, no, overconfidence is punished, uh, it was overconfidence in a way where there was no plausible deniability. So when there's no plausible deniability, when you're just shown to be flat out wrong, uh, you're going to be sanctioned for that. Mm. Nate Mickle, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Andy. Appreciate you having me on.
If you drive down the street in any city that participated in the so-called urban renewal of the 1960s and 70s, you've probably driven past a peculiar phenomenon and thought nothing of it. Often, a block in one of these cities follows an odd pattern, a series of several buildings in a row. By now, they're probably office buildings or in some kind of mixed-use rehab. But then, suddenly, the row of buildings stops, rather unnaturally. Building, building, lot. Building, 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 lot. So urban renewal all across the United States had some very similar characteristics. There were um, mass demolitions of entire blocks in downtown. And South Bend was really connected nationally. So in some ways, we were um, an example for how urban renewal can be achieved nationwide. Uh, we were kind of a poster child for urban renewal. Alicia Fiesel is administrator of the Historic Preservation Commission of South Bend, Indiana. And she estimates that in downtown South Bend and the immediate vicinity, 70% of the buildings that once stood in the 1920s stand no more. South Bend was really um, comprehensive at one point. Um, it was a very dense uh, downtown, so you, you wouldn't have had uh, parking lots so outside of alleys, there wouldn't be any breaks in a city block. Remembering the built environment of the city during this period is a major public education goal of the commission. To help, they turned to the School of Architecture and architecture librarian Jennifer Parker. Well, one thing that we were excited about when we learned about the possibility of incorporating an immersive experience is how could we recreate the city and show, give people the experience of walking down uh, Main Street, South Bend, before it was really transformed in the 60s and 70s to what it is today. So how could we take the past buildings and combine them with current buildings to create an experience where people would understand what South Bend had been and what it can be. The collaboration eventually produced the Building South Bend Project. It has several components, an app, a website, and something rather remarkable. A 3D printed map of blocks of historic downtown South Bend. Those models are made from blueprints housed at the Historical Commission, and they're being placed on tabletop displays inside Bond Hall on campus and at the South Bend History Museum. To ensure accurate placement, especially for buildings that are no longer standing, the project is using a grid taken from old fire insurance documents. Think of a model train set, but with buildings that are to scale and extremely intricately accurate in their design. To understand how a building is created and functions, you have to understand the details that go into it and how a architect will design it. And that starts with precedence, and it's a great way to really analyze a building through looking at an image and finding the key components of a building and why the architect did that. So that when you scale it up to a model, it's present and it's able to be understood and represented properly. That's Jessica Most, an architecture student from San Diego. She's become something of a resident expert on South Bend history through the project, something that comes up every so often when her and her friends are out on the town. <laughs> Multiple times. They tell me to be quiet sometimes. <laughs> I can't shut up about it. <laughs> but yes, um, the historical site downtown is fascinating, and I am constantly pointing out fascinating details and interesting buildings that mean something to South Bend, which is great. I'm learning about the environment in a way that they wouldn't get to see it. Um, I 
try to incorporate as much as like teaching them as possible and even like outside my major it's very important that people see South Bend as more than just a the Notre Dame surround. It's its own being and its own historical site. And to be sure, the project is coming at a time when there's a real feeling that South Bend's best days are ahead of it, not behind it. Call it irony or really good timing, but $63 million in private investment was pumped into downtown South Bend last year, revitalizing old buildings that were a part of the heyday. Projects like Building South Bend help make preservation not about dwelling on the past, but about planning for the future. So our project project is not designed to shame anyone for tearing down a building. It's designed so that we can study successful models from the past to build a better South Bend for the future and how our students can learn from that and incorporate that into their own research and design and perhaps a greater appreciation of the city of South Bend. Building South Bend changes the way you view the city uh, because you spend so much time looking at how it was. All you can see is potential in it. You don't see destroyed buildings. You don't see sad parking lots. You see what can be. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. 